Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. Are you ready to unlock the full potential and growth in your business? You've already crossed seven figures in sales, but the challenge is knowing how to take your business to the next level. Join Josh Hadley, an eight-figure e-com business owner and investor, as he interviews highly successful business owners. Get ready, because you're going to learn specific actions you can take today to help your business reach its full potential and leave a lasting impact on the world. Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Hadley, where I interview the top business leaders in e-commerce. Past guests include Kevin King, Stephen Pope, and Howard Tai. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Pradeep Sasidharan, CEO of Donsfield, an international business and trade development firm. And we're going to be talking a lot about his Amazon journey and also acquiring other businesses. This episode is brought to you by the Ecom Breakthrough Consulting, where I help take seven-figure companies and grow them to eight figures and beyond. Listen, Pradeep, I started Hadley Designs back in 2015, and it took me seven years to actually grow the brand to an eight-figure brand. There were a lot of times where I myself wasn't sure that I could grow the brand to eight figures, um, whether it be cash flow issues or whether I could actually lead an organization or our brand could stay relevant in the market. There were a lot of stumbling blocks that I hit along the way, and I wish I would have had a mentor or guide to help me overcome many of those stumbling blocks. So likewise, if our listeners have run into a plateau and are running into stumbling blocks and want to know the next steps to take their business to the next level, then go to ecombreakthrough.com. That's ecom with two M's to learn more. And as a special gift to our podcast listeners, this month I'm giving away one $10,000 comprehensive business strategy audit session at no cost. All you need to do is email me at josh at ecombreakthrough.com and in the subject line, make sure you say strategy audit and plead your case as to why I should choose your brand to work with for this month. And if you don't win this month, don't worry, because you'll be entered to win for future months to come. But today, I'm super excited to introduce you to Pradeep. But before we get to that, I want to give a big thank you to Amy Weiss and thank her for referring Pradeep as a guest for the podcast today. Amy Weiss is the CEO of Amazing Things at Home. She is a top-rated e-commerce consultant and Amazon guru. Um, she helps private label brands master the path from concept to launch. So go check out Amy at uh, Amazing at Home. So go check her out and a big shout out to her. But today I am excited to introduce you to Pradeep. He is trained as a scientist at Oxford University and Harvard University. And then he became the vice president of global business development for a biotech company. During the pandemic, he found himself in a unique situation, which led him to start his Amazon e-commerce business. He became a seven-figure seller in just 11 months and now has a new business model of acquiring distressed assets. And he also owns a boutique Amazon account uh, and launch management agency. So welcome to the podcast, Pradeep. Well, thank you so much, Josh. And uh, my, my thanks to Amy as well. Always good fun chatting to Amy. So thank you for the referral, Amy. And it's a privilege to be on this podcast with you. Well, Pradeep, I'm super excited to be talking with you. And you're currently, why don't you tell the listeners where you're currently, you know, uh, staying right now. There's a little bit of background noise, but tell them where you're at and uh, just so that they know for context. So I'm actually based in London. Um, unfortunately, there's a train strike going on. So I had to quickly pop into a hotel lobby. And I know this hotel very well, the people as well. Um, I always kind of conduct business meetings here. But unfortunately today for this podcast, there's a choir at the background. So <laughs> it's Christmas. So I'm like, who are these people? And they're still singing. So it might be a good vibe, uh, but we'll see how, how the podcast goes. So apologies if there's a bit of background noise. Hey, that's all good. And everybody loves a little bit of, you know, background Christmas music as well. So that's good. Even though that you might be listening to this in June of, uh, the following year. But with that being said, Pradeep, you come with a lot of knowledge and background. You've done some really cool things. And what I think is interesting is you have a background that not many people have, right? Um, you've went through Oxford, you went to Harvard as a scientist, and now you're, you've pivoted into e-commerce. So why don't you give people a quick rundown of that uh, career path or history that brought you to where you are today? Yeah, sure, sure. Um 
So, you know, people read this CV and profile, they're like, wow. But I'm like, yeah, I, I, I'm nothing special. Um, so, you know, I always describe myself as a zero dropout. And I tell kids when I talk, I go around the world, and particularly in the UK, and talk to kids about my career and what I've seen. I was actually, I, I left school at a very young age. I hated school. I hated studying and learning. Left at 16, worked in cafes, hotels, and bars, kind of got streetwise. Uh, got into trouble, but not too much trouble. Then I said, what the hell am I doing with my life at 21? So I went to a small college. Um, I think the U.S. guys will call it a state kind of school or, you know, a community college, sorry. And I've done very well there. And then eventually I got a scholarship to Imperial College, which is like to MIT. Then I got a scholarship to Oxford. Then I became a Fulbright scholar at Harvard. So I've done that, all that in six to seven years. It was ridiculously hard. And I tell kids, do it while you can at a young age. Do it in the proper way and manner. Um, I kind of went militant in my 20s. Um, but that journey asked me, uh, gave me the ability to ask questions. What is society telling me? How quickly can I scale success? And how quickly can I scale to actually meet my goals? So when I was doing that journey, I'd done it very quickly, done my PhD. And then when I went to Harvard, I came back and I said, hey guys, professors, give me, give me some money. I got some drug targets and I'll get to Amazon. And, and, and they said, yeah, you're too young. It'll take 30 years. So I always tell people life is all about a numbers game, a sales game and a risk game. So I made 272 phone calls and one guy picked up in China and I said, hey, uh, can I come to China and discover drugs? They're like, come over. So I was 27, uh, no, sorry, I was 29. I packed my bags, went to China within 10 days, landed, became associate professor and VP of business development, discovered those three drugs that my professors in the West would say 30 years in 18 months. So again, wow. scale, how quickly can you scale? How quickly can you get your goal? And when I, when I discovered those, I was really happy. Then I, my CEO was like, hey, come over here and do some business development. So when I was doing business development, I learned about M&A. I wasn't a numbers guy or legal guy, but I could do the science. I can analyze data. And I think that's very important for e-commerce sellers and data and you know, how data can be implemented. Then I can do the deals, negotiate, see what a good price is and a bad price is, and pick up these distressed assets, meaning there's an asset there or a company for a cheaper price, or they may be going down and you pick it up and turn it around. And then when I came back in China, the pandemic hit. Um, and it got very hard to live in China because of the um, lockdowns and so forth. So Josh, they told me I have to go to this hotel uh, to eat some food. And some of these listeners might, be, might know my story by now. But when I go to this restaurant, all I see is uh, all these Chinese men on laptops, smoking away with their laptops. And I said, hey, hey, what do you guys do? And they're like, we sell on Amazon. We're an e-commerce seller. I said, huh? What's that? Like, I had no idea, what, two and a half, three years ago, what e-commerce was. I said, hey, I do corporate business development. Can I see your numbers? And what is this? I'm a very curious being, right? I see 300,000 days. I see 200% ROIs. I'm like, what the hell is going on? So within three days, with VPN, no Helium 10, no Jungle Scout, I set up my business. Uh, I kind of haggled my way saying, hey, to one of these factory owners, give me some toys. I started selling in the UK, um, taught myself everything on the side. I was still doing the science. And the toys are selling very well. I'm like, hey, this is a side hustle and it's going well, right? And then um, I had no idea what black hat was, white hat, baseball cap. I had nothing. I didn't know who Amy Weaves was. Josh Hardley, I didn't know anyone. Um, and then I said, okay, China's great. i done my CV. i done all the things in science. Let's go back to the UK. Came back to the UK. I went to approach the traditional pharma biotech company saying, hey, I got all this experience. Give me a job. Then I, nope, you're too young and overqualified. I'm like, Jesus Christ. So then I said, I packed my career. Uh, and it comes down to what people say, what's the biggest difference for very successful people I've seen in life? Not me, but others. It comes out to risk appetite, how willing mm. someone is for their risk and appetite. So I quit my career, started the e-commerce permanently, started Amazon, started learning about the network, the people, started giving mm. talks, um, I, you know, scaled to seven figures very quickly. Then I thought, hey, I can start this acquisition process, the distress acquisition process 
the same thing and acquire at this down market. So that's when I started this um, kind of acquisition journey as well. So launch brands, keep by brands, and also acquire as well. Uh, that's a long story, but I think it's very important people get the background and the mindset because, you know, uh, people get confused when they see these brands and fancy names and PhDs, but I'm just a zero dropout. Yeah, no, Pradeep, I mean, what an amazing background and experience you have. But at the end of the day, I think you, you never left that. You've always had that hustle and appetite for risk that you've maintained, right? And I think those are things that are innately within us. And some of us, we need to develop more of that, right? Of hustle and grind. And But some of these are naturally occurring in many of us to where it's like, there's just something that keeps me driving and moving forward. Like some people are just very driven individuals. And that's what I love is that there the world is so big and there are so many opportunities for all of us that if you are driven enough and you're hungry enough to succeed, you will succeed. doesn't mean the first thing that you attempt will be the thing, but you're the type of person who's never going to give up even when the going gets tough. And so I, I love to kind of hear your experience and you are still very successful, even as you know, the VP of business development. Um, but you're, you've been crushing it in the e-commerce space. So Tell us about what you have currently going on right now, Pradeep. Are you still running your Amazon brand and acquiring other businesses? Tell us a little bit more about what your day-to-day looks like now and the businesses that you're operating. Yeah, so at the moment, um, I do a lot of things, but I like to keep myself busy. Wake up in the morning, keep myself busy. By the way, just going back to your point on risk appetite, I think if you're ambitious and you keep changing your goal and challenging your goal, if your ambition goes up, it correlates well with risk appetite um, because you've got to take risks for every step of the ambitious ladder. So that's what I realized as well. So if you keep setting your goals and keep bumping them up, you have to naturally take more risk. And if it's innate or not, yes, I agree. But uh, if you bump up your goals, you have more appetite for risk. But coming back to your question, um, I run brands. I, have, um, I wake up in the morning. I make my China calls, check the inventory check with my inventory manager, um, check with my suppliers. I always make a, a case, you know, get WeChat everyone, call my Chinese colleagues, uh, my factory saying, hey, how are you? Check on a daily basis or every three or four days. Then I go on some consulting um, um, calls, particularly in science. I still keep the science also because I like that kind of intellectual side and also try to help young CEOs and other companies grow startups. So I consult on that side. Then I um, go back and by probably around one, two o'clock, um, I start looking at M&A deals, so distress asset deals and those deals as well. So we look at, you know, companies, as I told you, we probably looked at, earlier I told you previously that we looked at 90 businesses so far in the last two quarters already. I mean, uh, this month is, uh, I don't know when the recording will go, but this is December 13th. We already this month looked at 20 odd deals as well that come to us from all, all, all angles. So look at those M&A deals. Then uh, when it becomes a bit more in the evening time, UK time, I'll talk to my teams in Pakistan, in Philippines, my VAs, to make sure all the systems are checked. Everyone knows what's going on. Um, and yeah, that's my day. So run brands and also look at M&A deals and start trying to make some deals as well. I love that. That's great. Well, with as much as you have going on, I imagine that you have teams, which you kind of mentioned, that are kind of coordinating a lot of those, the day-to-day operations of the business, right? In order for you to have reviewed, you know, 20 different potential deal, you know, M&A opportunities, you have to be able to have a team that's keeping the day-to-day of your brands running. Is that correct? Would you mind sharing with the audience what your kind of organizational structure looks like in order to run multiple brands and, and what your team is doing for you? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so we have, I have an overall manager. Uh, then we have a PPC manager, a inventory manager, account manager, and that's kind of the Amazon brand. And then on the side, uh, you know, part of the team, I just have a uh, M&A guy, uh, which really means we just uh, kind of administrate the role. Here are the accounts, here are the kind of P&L forecasts, here's the numbers, you know, all ordered. So I can go in and check these. Um, on a daily basis or whatnot. I, I like to get nitty and gritty with the M&A. I, it's probably when deal flow gets a bit more, 
I, I might need a, that guy or someone else to step up. But uh, I love to make those calls. Germany, UK, we dealt something in Australia, in US a lot. So I actually make those Zoom calls, talk to the owners. I try to do this a lot to say what's going on, you know, what's happening to the brand, why is it failing, why are you uh, selling it cheaper, how the cogs like, how the inventory. And you learn so much of why people are going down, why people are exiting, and why sometimes aggregators or others who are actually well-versed in the industry are losing out. Um, so that can also help you as a brand owner tinker around and say, hey, this is how we scale. Hey, we shouldn't go to this end and so forth. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that as you do get to review, you know, acquiring other brands, you are seeing like mistakes other people are making, why they started slipping and, and why they're trying to like exit their business. Some people are trying to run away from, you know, the train going in the wrong direction and they don't know how to tr get it back on the right track. And so I think you've got a lot of experience and I want to dive into, um, you know, what you're seeing as you look under the hood of multiple businesses, mistakes that you're seeing made there. But before we get into that, you know, our earlier conversation before we hit the record button, you mentioned, you know, it's kind of a unique opportunity right now. And you feel like there's a space for kind of having or being a solo aggregator. Can you tell me more about, you know, why you think that that's a, a thing that can happen in today's environment and why that might be so important for people to consider? Sure, sure. Uh, you're quite uh, famous in the field. So some of your listeners might be very sophisticated. So I might be preaching to the choir here, but um, I know a lot of people already start their acquiring. But I think it's a great time. And the way I compare it is to the kind of a dot-com dot bubble where you had the internet of things coming in the 80s and 90s. Then you have this big boom. People make a lot of money exiting for millions and billions like Mark Cuban. And then you had the crash, right? And then you had very sophisticated uh, iterations coming through. Google really solidifying their step and so forth. Then you had the Facebooks, uh, the Amazons coming. Well, Amazon was already there, but accelerating on, right? Um, so I think that's where the space is now. We're at the kind of an e-commerce burst of the bubble, right? Um, and so now is the time where sophisticated individuals or real people who are willing to driven and get down to the nitty gritty will succeed. And the people who made money, kudos to you. You got on the right time. You made money. Get out and you can invest and have a luxury life. Really happy for you. But then... You know, the ambitious people can build on those by acquiring cheaper distressed assets and actually build a couple of brands, an empire, and then leverage that more for more cash flow, I believe. And it's just, that's fun. Building stuff for me is fun. Uh, or you can pick up very cheap assets and turn them around as well. So I think this is the e-commerce bubble burst um, where there's, uh, uh, you know, danger, there's opportunity. And um, so I think yeah. this is the right time to do these things. Yeah, I I also agree that right now is the time for micro brands, right? It's never been easier for somebody to, you know, from their basement, create a new brand and have it on the world's biggest, you know, shopping platform, which is Amazon right now. And to, uh, you know, it used to be like getting into retail is so difficult, right? You're paying for slotting fees. You have to upfront all of this inventory and you're kind of betting the farm in a way. But on Amazon's like you can test stuff out very cheaply. You're, like your risk on Amazon is is lower than if you're just going into retail. So with that being said, there's been a rise in all of these micro brands and being able to roll them up and actually scale them profitably, I think is a huge opportunity because many of those people that started their brand from their basement have no desire to implement operating systems to really do what it's going to take in order to scale a brand to that eight figures and beyond or whatever it needs to be. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for people like you and I uh, to get, dive in and help, you know, strategically position or pivot these businesses for future success. And it's a rewarding opportunity. Um, so Pradeep, with that being said, tell me, how are you sourcing these deals? Are you going to, you know, I know there's a lot of, brokerage firms out there. You have Quiet Light, Ecom, you know, Empire Flippers. There's a lot of those kind of well-known M&A websites, right, that do that list businesses for sale. Is that where you're sourcing, you know, or you find many of these businesses that you're 
reviewing their deal structures for, or are you doing, you know, kind of cold calling and outreach to discover brands that haven't even listed publicly that they're available for sale? Yeah, I think if you're coming to healthy assets per se, um, the brokerage firms are quite good. The Empire Flippers, Flippers, um, uh, whatnot, uh, those brokers are good. I talk to independent brokers as well. Um, they're quite good as well. Distressed assets, people still are very guarded, have an ego, you know, a, a bit shy and a bit embarrassed to say they're failing, uh, which is fine, right? Um, so it comes down to personal connections, getting on podcasts or going to events, seeing people, telling them what you do, and then they reach out to yourself. So all of the, all of the above, you just have to get out there, hustle, call, call, let people come to you, talk to brokers, um, maybe even talk to aggregators, maybe talk to people who own multiple brands saying, hey, you have something that's going wrong or whatnot, you can take over. Um, so talking about the micro brand, so far at this podcast, we actually acquired only one brand per se, but when talks with acquiring two healthy kind of uh, smaller brands, we, we think we can pivot and scale up. We brought a brand for 99p, can you believe it, Josh, which is like $1.13. <laughs> so that I was the inventory. Yeah, so... You know, sometimes you don't have to compete with 200, 300 million raises with aggregators. You know, I've done big money deals in corporate pharma, but sometimes you would get the best deals are very cheap uh, and then the multiples are crazy. So we looked at many so, businesses. This business was a husband and wife business and we can get down to failures if you want. But what we saw is that inventory was overstocked and one particular inventory, in this case, a baby product, I'm not going to go into the product itself, was worth scaling in the UK market. So what we did was we're essentially white labeling the inventory that's already here. Um, luckily for us, the trademark was on the product itself, but not um, a trademark in the registry. Um, so we trademarked the logo, uh, the brand as well, and we brought the inventory. Now we gave 99p Everest. Why would you sell it? Because they were spending eight to $10,000 a month on inventory for the whole kind of their portfolio. So if they can get rid of 5,000 units of their backs and reduce that price, that we're doing them a favor. So you got to go in that thing. How can I do you a favor, but in return benefit me as well? So I took inventory of them and to make a transactional deal, I paid 99p. So that's one of the ways we kind of micro uh, acquired and are scaling now. I love that. Yeah, I think that would be a great case study to dive into a little bit deeper, right? So you bought a brand or, you know, a business for, you know, so it was $1.39.13, whatever it was, is a very small amount as your upfront, you know, um, payment. And we've actually had Roland Frazier on the podcast as well. So he's one of the first episodes. So I encourage our listeners to go look at that because he does talk so much about how to acquire businesses for no money out of pocket, right? So he's talking about, hey, how can you get creative with your financing, just like you're talking about here, Pradeep, and this is a great case study of like how to be creative with deal structures. So anyways, Roland Frazier's one to check out, but Pradeep, why don't you go uh, a little bit deeper into this case study? How did this all evolve and what have been the results since then? And, and how did you structure things with this husband and wife? Yeah, um, sorry. So coming back to your sources, one of the sources are VAs. VAs are highly connected in any country, Pakistan, Philippines, South America. So one of the VAs, uh, contacted my VAs, and this is important. Everyone is someone big in their world. That's why I kept telling. So I never look down or look up on people, just look straight, right? Uh, I think I nicked that from Sadhguru, but anyway. <laughs> but uh, and then, so, um, so yeah, my VA is probably saying, hey, I, we know this VA. He's, he's working with the husband and wife team in the UK. They have a brand, and they had like three or four brands ready to launch. Uh, but their first brand that was their major cash flow, kind of cash cow, is failing. So they have no money to launch others. Um, mm. So, again, we can go into, I, I've got, for this podcast, I've got four things I think are, uh, we see very much in all of the distressed brands. Well, we can go into that. Uh, but for this specific case study, so then oh, I said, yes, let's, let's have a chat. So I talked to them and I said, hey, uh, what's going on? This is what's happening. 
I said, okay, let me see all your inventory and your brands and see what's happening. And that's how we got creative with deals. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can get creative with financing. You can have seller notes. You can have revenue-based financing. You can have a, in the U.S., I think you call it SBA loan and then yeah. put a percentage up front yourself. Uh, but really, what you're doing is trying to buy inventory and then rescaling and rebranding. And it's even better if it's already in Amazon and they will, are willing to give that away for free or for a very low cost. And you can even say, hey, let me pump some PPC money in with the credit coming already in my account or maybe use daily allowance or weekly allowance and whatnot if you don't have it or a credit card. But let's take over your account. Let's make a deal. Take over your account. I'll take all the inventory and I'll pay you for the inventory and calls after I sell these. So usually mm. these people are trying to get out. So you're trying to give them money on their way out. So the earn out is in a couple of months. So it's how you negotiate that deal. And sometimes it's about, you know, being looking dumb, looking naive, not being embarrassed to have a low offer. You know, sometimes people are not willing to look cheap. Yeah. Um, You've got to yeah. be, be willing to ask. That's good to know. So you acquired the entire brand or just their inventory? So in this case, it's a distressed inventory purchase. But okay. we were lucky. And this is where if you, you know, if you go out there, you make your own luck. In this case, the, the inventory had the brand name and the image and logo, but they didn't trademark the actual mm. um, logo. So we trademarked and made it into a brand. Okay, good to know. Interesting. So, yeah, Pradeep, you mentioned earlier that uh, you kind of see four common pitfalls or mistakes that these other companies are making as you're reviewing, you know, potential M&A deals. So why don't you let's dive into those four things and let's get as detailed as possible with actionable items that our listeners can make sure that they're not making those same mistakes so that they don't become a distressed, uh, you know, sell or exit. Um, so the four things, uh, and it's and it's quite interesting because it wasn't the four things I expected, but it's the foundation, as 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 we always see the foundation. It's cogs. Uh, uh, it's the ability. Let's look at cogs. It's the ability to negotiate negotiate cogs in the first place with factories, in China, anywhere in the world, and how to renegotiate cogs as the brand grows. It's the ability to manage inventory flow. Uh, timing, shipping, and storage, and 3PL, right? Um, it's also the ability to, I say, not spend too much on gurus and consultants and luxury uh -huh. items in the field because, you know, we're always inundated. And these are great people. They don't mean bad, uh, but we see excessive spending in the business to do things that are not necessary. Uh, and we can get the examples of those as well. And it's the fourth one is the ability to think scaling means multiple brand launches and product launches at the same time. Um, and sometimes scaling means to level up horizontally for a while, particularly in this time and grow. What we don't see, and this is very interesting, is that we don't see massive differences in appalling PPC or listing optimization. Those two mm. things we, we believe Yes, everyone is up to their own flavor how they do PPC and listing, right? Obviously, we can change those things and we can do those things, but they're easier to change. When you get cogs and inventory and mismanagement of cash flow, that's harder to change and that's all a dent already in the business. So you have a lot of people in the space, in conferences and so forth, talk about PPC, listing optimization, branding, imaging, which is all fine, but those things can be changed very quickly. But, yep. you know, generally, if you're a good seller, you're at seven or eight figures already. Those things are worked out. So we don't see massive flows in those, but we can look at cogs. We can look at inventory management and flow, uh, unnecessary spending. Uh, and also um, the fourth one now just totally escaped my mind. <laughs> fourth one um, was multiple brands, right? And products. Yeah, multiple brands. Launch. Yeah. And so if you want to, I don't know, Josh, if you want to deep dive into all those four things, individually yeah. or i think that would be very good yeah I, let's deep dive into each of those individually i love that you made the mention of when we go to conferences and as you listen to speakers speak on stage or even listening to podcasts time and time again we hear the same 
optimization strategies and the same keyword strategies. And it's just a new tool that people are using. But instead, what you're saying is like the hard stuff is what people aren't necessarily talking about. People aren't getting into the weeds of cogs and negotiating with suppliers and renegotiating on an ongoing basis and the finer details of logistics and where you're warehousing things. And with Amazon, you know, reducing inventory limits across the board for people, what are people doing now to kind of prepare themselves for a world where Amazon does limit you completely and with maybe one or two months worth of inventory and that's it. And how are you staging your inventory and still winning on Amazon in that environment? And then cash flow. I mean, all of these things are such great topics. So yes, let's dive, do a deep dive into each of these. Let's start with the COGS first. Yeah, sure. Um, so what we see is quite interesting with COGS. Um, the COG numbers to start off with sometimes are the minimum, we say three to five, but as Amazon and e-commerce goes more expensive, I think it's above eight to 10. So if you're buying something for $1, you should be above eight to 10 in terms of selling prices, if not more, right? Uh, what we see is again and again, people are saying, hey, we have particularly beginners. Hey, uh, we have this, uh, it's three to four, but with inventory, PPC shipping and all these things, it, it's just a, it, the profits are gone. Before the pandemic or during the pandemic, it's very profitable. And this is, by the way, experience. This sounds stupid. I find I find myself finding myself stupid explaining this to someone. But we actually see it every day. Seven, eight, nine figure sellers saying, "Do you want this brand?" Because the cogs have gone too expensive because they haven't worked out fundamentally the multiples, uh, and the multiples have to be really strong now and a bigger multiple margin to sell. So those cogs are fundamentally negotiable, and you have to have the right product and the cogs at a cheap price. Number one, it sounds stupid, but that's what we see. Number two is the renegotiation. Hey, we brought 100,000 units. Next time, we're going to have three, 400,000 units, but you're still selling for the same price. Why? Your, your factory should be giving you a note or, you know, to handle cash flow, a cheaper price because they're getting raw material cheaper. And what we see is, you know, I signed NDAs, but what we see is some of these aggregators um, and others who are famous, uh, when they go back and some of these uh, factories are quite savvy, say, hey, you raised X amount of money, all of a sudden your cogs are gone up. So, you know, so I think that's again how you negotiate and how you have exclusive agreements for a period of time, particularly on your best selling products. Mm-hmm. We do this in pharma and other business schools all around the world. You want it for five years, this is the price. If, if, the, if, if the inflation goes down or if the market changes, this is going to be a price. We have the power to change it, not you. So it might be having exclusive agreements. And that's how sophisticated you guys, we have to get in e-commerce because this is no longer a, um, a mom and pop kind of operation. This has to be sophisticated. Even if you're a mom and pop or a guy yeah. in the basement, that's how you should be thinking. Uh, you know, solar, you, you could be a corporate on your own, uh, but you've got to think like that. So COGS and how you define the first COGS and renegotiate the COGS is very important. Then thirdly, how are you people storing cogs, right? How are you doing unit economics and how are you storing Excel sheet or software and so forth? And that has to be updated on a daily basis. Uh, we see fundamental mistakes and we see fundamental errors as well. You can pot- pick it up straight away from uh, profit and loss statements as well. Um, so that's something uh, people have to be aware of. And it gets really hard because if you have multiple brands, multiple products, multiple inventory, you know, it's all yeah. over the place gets complicated really quick. So basically what you're saying is that, especially in the environment, the inflationary environment that we're in today, a lot of sellers I think are stuck between a rock and a hard place where their cogs have gone up dramatically, right? And then let alone the container prices have come down recently, but those were sky high for a period of time. But yet what I found on Amazon is you still find a lot of those overseas manufacturers still charging the same price for their product or even less. And so while people should be raising their prices, they're doing the exact opposite and just squeezing every, you know, dime of, of margin from their business, which is, you know, dramatically impacting them. So what do you do in that type of situation, Pradeep? Like people aren't raising their prices 
um, on Amazon, right? So if you're going to raise your price, you're going to be higher, right? Than the average market. Um, but now your, your cost of goods have increased. Is this literally just a negotiation with the supplier and saying, Hey, that like my business is not viable if my cogs are at this point, right? So you'll lose my entire business if we can't come to a resolution. Is, is that what you're saying people should do? Or are there different ideas that you would give to people that are in that situation? Their cogs have gone up a lot, but the price on Amazon that they can charge really hasn't changed in the markets about the same as it was even pre-COVID. Yeah, so so there's different ideas. Um, number one, I'll re- renegotiate, particularly if you've got a hero product and you're buying lots of it from the same factory, renegotiate. Number two, if you see a lot of Chinese or new players coming into your market and you're outpriced, get out. Or if you think your branding's strong, what you do is rebrand in a Western style. Obviously, people know that's already. And keep your normal pricing strategy. Pricing strategy is important. Sometimes value propositions in the price itself. So if you think you're still selling and you've got good reviews, and keep your price high. Uh, and people might see a difference just in the eye and your value proposition. But if you think you're getting squeezed out, you know, it's fine leveling, leveling out and selling out and saying, hey, I had a great run, by the way, you know. I hit like eight home runs, uh, American kind of analogy. <laughs> it's been a good ride, made a profit, made a brand, enjoyed it. Let's go to the next one or let's see how we can rebrand this into another kind of product. It's, it's not, not bad getting out. Uh, and number four, what I'll also do is um, try to... Um, understand and this is is that the chinese and other uh factories obviously they might be manufacturers and they can afford to keep the price or go down but what i think is happening and what i've seen is even these factories have overestimated the inventory and that's the second point inventory management mm. i think they have made a hundred thousand units and they're stuck on in in china saying what the hell do we do just flood amazon mm. let's sell out and get out so imagine mm. the case of you phoning all the Chinese networks you have saying, how much of this is happening? So you might outlast them in that niche, in that yeah. niche, until they sell out. But that's a stra- risky strategy. But I know yeah. by talking to my China networks that, you know, Chinese imp- exports have gone down, if you looked at it. And, yeah. you, know, they, you know, one of our pet suppliers, they said, hey, we, we, we have 100,000 of these products. Do you want it? I'm like, no, because you're distressed and you're the manufacturer. So <laughs> yeah. it's like, so you, that might be a case where they might sell out and you might just have to hang in there. It's like, it's like war it's, yeah. you know, on the Western front and you just have yeah. to trench, dig the trenches and stay out. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think from my experience, I see kind of the same thing. Um, there are a lot, I think the where I see Amazon going in the next few years is I think Amazon customers are kind of getting tired of buying the the cheap stuff on Amazon, so to speak. I think it's becoming very apparent when somebody gets something, it doesn't, it comes in a poly bag, right? There's no branding on it. They can't even pronounce the brand name itself, right? If they look at it on Amazon, it's, you know, it's amazing that those overseas sellers like can't come up with anything more than throwing a bunch of consonants together that don't even make sense. Um, but I think the U.S. consumer is kind of getting tired of that and realizing like, OK, maybe I don't need the cheapest thing on Amazon if I'm looking for, you know, a, a new tumbler mug or something like that, because the quality is going to be a little bit lower. Instead, you know, I think the U.S. customer will shift um, now with inflation and, you know, a p- pending recession and all these things like U.S. consumers are being more you know, discerning with their money at the same time. So they are looking for cheaper options, but I still think like they're, they're looking for solid quality as well. So to your point, your positioning for your product and price can become very, very important. For example, we in our, one of our most competitive spaces in our business, we are two times the price of our other competitors, two times the price, right? They're selling for $12. And we're selling at twenty four ninety nine. Yet our products are ranked consistently in the top five every single day. And so, who do you think is going to win and outlast? I recently saw one of our overseas competitors that has been around for a long time. They continue to drop their price 
by a dollar, a dollar every month. And I was like, what is going on? Like Amazon fees are only increasing and yet you're like just throwing it all away. And I think to your point, like we have essentially outlasted them now, whether they come back or not, I don't know at this point, but I mean, they just kept, they were like the market loser, so to speak at like nine ninety nine cheapest price. And I'm like, there's no way like you're making like maybe 10 cents a unit here, if that. And so th- there is a strategy in play there for business owners to like consider. Now you need to test it out, right? It's easier said than done to be able to charge double the market price, right? Now, a lot of that goes into branding and, and testing all that out, but there is a space like you talked about for it. You don't always, and you shouldn't be the low cost leader. No, I agree. Um, Coming back to one of your points, actually, uh, it's a case study again. Uh, we looked at a distressed asset. Now, in terms of COGS, and we'll get the inventory next, is that we've, we saw a brand. We didn't buy this brand. Uh, it was a baby product. And I, you go through this list. I'm like, what's this? It's so expensive. Why is it so expensive? So I'm like, hey, we signed an NDA. Can I speak to your supplier? And it turned out that COGS is also about saying, how much does this metal cost? How much, how much does each piece component cost? How do you manufacture it? Where's the raw material from? What do you actually assemble for? It turned out, and I'm like, why is this $80 to $20 more than a normal thing, even when you Google on Amazon, uh, Alibaba, right? It turned out this uh, manufacturer sent a component out to, for it got stamped, then brand to get stamped, sent it back to the factory, assembled it, and then shipped it. That's $20 or $17. For that price, you can actually Air Express ship into the US and still oh, yeah. save some money on PPC. So it's the ability to deep dive on the calls as well. So they were losing out because they thought the branding was so much important in terms of stamping. And they forgot, by the way, that this $17 was part of a COGS because they've been running the business for two years. And then the aggregator that was looking at it, who said, we're not going to do it, didn't even look at it because they just said COGS, $100 mm. or whatever it was, right? So they don't know how that COGS is. What is what does fifty dollars cogs mean? What is yeah. that each component? So you've got a deep dive as well. Um, so that's very important. And I'll be the savviness of this is how do you keep a high brand but cut down on essentials? Yes. So you don't need a poly yeah. bag, but can you get a more luxurious packaging but a cheaper kind of weight? You know, you gotta to talk to those Chinese manufacturers or whatever manufacturers and get that branding and cogs down on an individual basis as well. Yeah, I think what you talked about right there with like talking to your suppliers and discussing like what are the individual components that go into it, right? And and you've got to get to a relationship with your suppliers that you can get their honesty on that, right? And be like, well, it's this much to source this component, this much to source that, that, that. And then you're like, oh, wait, this thing costs that much? Do we really need this little widget to go into our product? Or is there a cheaper alternative? And it's like, oh, yeah, there is. But you asked for X, Y, Z. So that's what we've been giving you. And it's like, wow, like that, that opens up the, to a whole new ball game. So I love that. Pradeep, let's go on to number two there with inventory. What issues are you seeing? Let's deep dive there. Uh, inventory, it's, everyone's overstocked for some reason. They thought Q4 is the time. This is kind of formula. And I see it in different industries. If we pharma, hey, go after this. A hot topic drug or this is the uh, you know, rule of thumb. Uh, Q4, let's everyone stock up. It's going to be our biggest quarter. It doesn't work out sometimes. Uh, you, know, it, you don't have a crystal ball. So too much overstocking of inventory. Uh, to, uh, ex- use of expensive 3PLs. You know, get somewhere cheaper. Uh, actually, it might be easier to have shorter bursts of supplies coming in than a huge bunch of storing it somewhere or, you know, People, we've seen ridiculous deal, 100,000 units, 300,000 purchased for a year, and they can't sell out. So for inventory management, forecasting, and also shipping as well, I think it's really bad. And that's where when you're picking up distressed assets or even healthy assets, you can really get creative and say, hey, give us a seller note in inventory because you're overstocked. So that's a real leverage point people can use. Um, and you really need to manage that very well. Yeah. I completely agree. And I think that with a lot, I mean, Amazon's changing the game as it relates to, you know, how they're warehousing products. So what advice do you have in terms of like finding less expensive 3PLs and getting the product 
closer, um, but more cheaply and knowing that Amazon's not going to be the place where you can just dump your products anymore. It comes down to, for me, and you know, my inventory manager is making the course, um, getting the conferences, hunt uh, out for new 3PL and new kids on the block because they're willing to give cheaper deals and make deals. And you can be mm. creative with those deals. Uh, particularly if you're a big seller, you can bring volume to them because they need new business. So, you know, we've done very well uh, working with the smaller guys, not because they have smaller warehouses, because they're new, new kids on the block. Uh, and yeah. they help you out very much. Uh, and, you know, uh, and, and they need their business to boom. So they'll give you very good deals and for long-term storage as well. You know, and get out there and help them as well advertise, you know, do some advertising and, you know, for them and they'll, they will in return treat you kindly. So it's all a business negotiation. So that's the tip we've learned very well. Uh, you can't control Amazon. You can only control what you can do. Uh, you yep. know, so there's all these people about restock limits and everything. I'm like, okay, that's all good and good stuff. But how can I control what's in my kind of um, area? Um, so that's the only thing I'll say. And, you know, I think the cheaper inland, particularly U.S., newer kids in the block will give you a big deal. Um, well, um, and that'd be very good. That's great. That's great insight and great recommendation to go find some of the newer startup 3PLs. Maybe they don't have all of their processes, uh, you know, ironed out, so to speak. But if you're willing to grow with them, you could get some really good deals because, yeah, it's true. Even 3PLs are getting more and more expensive. So uh, great insight. Don't also over order your inventory. Pradeep, I'm interested to kind of get your perspective on how do you balance ordering inventory, right, to get your obviously the higher volume of units that you place you can get a lower cost, but that also is going to take into consideration warehousing. And if you order a year's worth of inventory and your projections don't line up with that, wow, that's going to be really tough. Now now that's 18, maybe two years worth of inventory. So what is your recommendation and best practice as it relates to inventory purchases, like buying four months, six months worth of inventory at any, any given point in time? Any guidelines that you have there? Look, this is what we've done, and uh, we've never brought one year's of inventory. Uh, the maximum we've brought is probably six months' worth of inventory. Uh, what we've done is actually given uh, the factories, in our case in China, enough money for raw materials so they can purchase and store that in their factory and make it at our request. So even mm. if we see growth, we've never seen... 200% or 300% or 100% growth where that much inventory is ne necessary. So we've only seen 25 to 30% growth. So it, it might be a rule of thumb, and this is me speaking on what we've seen, and I might be totally wrong. Uh, there might be bigger 10, I don't know, 11 figure sellers. <laughs> but we've only seen 30% growth in terms of inventory every time we ship in. So that's, that's kind of a buffer and safety zone as well because you know, your cogs can manage that. But if you have 100 or 200% or one year's worth of uh, inventory, we've never been able to kind of store that. But we made deals with Chinese factories to actually store it for us until we need shipping. So the cycle is short on the 3PL side, but storage is actually free on the China side, if that makes mm. any sense. Yeah. And we actually pay for the raw material. So if they have a lump of raw material, these sort of boxes all laid out in their factories. So that, I think, is key as well. Yeah, fascinating. But, but, uh, but that comes down with real negotiation and building a relationship and rapport. And I think that only works with the hero products or big volume uh, products as well. Yeah. At the end of the day, paying attention to your suppliers, your manufacturers, creating real partnerships with them. And then, you know, this even goes into your next thing, which is going to be cash flow. But your your supplier should be your biggest partner in your business. And I know for our business itself, our supplier is one of our biggest partners. We've been working with the same manufacturer for seven years. And I have a great relationship with that other business owner. And we know it's a partnership. He goes out of business. I myself am, am, am out of luck, right? And so it's always a balance of like, hey, can you help me out here? Can you help me out here? You know, when COVID hit, for example, in our business, overnight, they Amazon introduced inventory limits for the first time, right? And we 
were immediately overstocked. And I was like, oh, my goodness, let alone we were in like the party space. And so no party goods were moving at the time. And I was like, I can't even sell this even if I wanted to like this. We were in a world of hurt. And our supplier said, hey, I'll warehouse it for free for you. Right. And they helped us get through that. And in addition to that, creative financing with your suppliers as well is super important. Right. You've got to be able like, can you get them to you know, actually produce the inventory and even ship it uh, before you've paid anything for it, right? There are situations where you have no deposit because you have such a good relationship with that supplier. You're not paying anything up front. And you may even have terms where it's 30 days where you're actually selling the product before you've even paid for the product, right? Imagine what a shift that can have in your business if you're making money before you even have even paid for that product and that leads into cash flow. So let's talk about, you know, cash flow, excessive spending is what you kind of mentioned. What issues do you see there that sellers are making? Yeah, we, we see three things, particularly um, unnecessary spending on um, outside consultants, gurus or external agencies, um, poor human resources, um, and also poor negotiation of terms, as you just mentioned. So number one, you know, I feel everyone obviously is trying to make money and everyone, consultants, gurus, agencies, they're all like actually quite nice. I go to conferences, they're mean well. But as a seller, you really need to pick and choose. It's like a kid in a candy store. Most of the sellers are in their 20s or early 30s and they're very um, highly influenced, right? So you're like, boom, 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 boom. You really need to say, hey, Here's my weakness uh, for the next six months. Can I just spend on this case study, um, uh, beauty product? Doing very well, wanted to rebrand, went in trying to get a good uh, manager, paying, I think, $10,000 per month for brand management, not even pictures, but consulting. Mm. Went down, distressed asset now. Another uh, prominent uh, business which has five, six good brands hired human resources, um, a, a former uh, U.S. Army supply chain expert. I'm sure this guy is super bright, brighter than you and I, Josh. He used to get bullets and tanks into Afghanistan and Iraq, apparently, and they wow. hyped him up. Uh, but they were paying, when we saw it, they were paying in 100000 120000 140000 for this guy. You don't need that kind of expertise for 10 ASINs or 6 ASINs into Amazon U- USA. So yep. sometimes it's just overthinking you're still an amazon seller and you're not a corporate i think that's who am i and the aggregators might be listening saying who is this guy but i think that's also a space where aggregators are failing out as well you know you can get five or six guys vas for the price of one mba i'm not saying mbas are bad but mbas might not be the right thing for that job description so poor poor human resources poor excessive spending Conferences, we see a lot of expenses on conferences. You're only seeing the same guys, same talk every time. It's just a, what we call in England, a, a, a piss up. You're just getting drunk <laughs> with yeah. the same people, with the same knowledge. How much time can you see? Well, if they're paying for you, if you're a guest speaker, if you do it once locally or one international, it's fine. Use that money to actually go to a cheaper country like Vietnam or India, or China, make good networks with people at cheaper price than seeing yeah. the same guys in the US or UK uh, and there's nothing wrong with these guys but you can use the money more fruitfully and cheaper and really I mean this we see the P&Ls and this is this is a real issue and the third is four terms so you just you need 30, 60 day 90, 90 day terms sometimes even 120 day terms we, we've used as well to say hey we, we're, we're ordering this much you've got to give us terms 30% deposit 15% deposit so it helps your cash flow as well. Coming back to the point, if you're going to acquire brands, cash flow is king. The quickest thing you can do to increase revenue is buy revenue. So buying uh, brands. But the brand's cash flow has to be cash flow positive. Even if you're buying a distressed asset, you have to go in there saying, I'm cutting all this spending out to make it cash flow positive. So it pays for itself. So now there's cash flow and we look better. And then you leverage that cash flow to buy even more. And there's more cash flow and there's a surplus going. Um, yeah. So terms are very important for that as well. And how you negotiate terms is very important. You can actually 
you know, get a guy, you know, when you, when, when you go to a new field or a new category, you might bring someone along and say, here's my friend, Josh. Josh used to do parties. Now, when you bring Josh along, your actually credentials are now matched with Josh, and Josh has to agree to come along. So now Josh can say, hey, I know Pradeep. Uh, can you give him terms? Not like 120 days for me, but a 30-day term for Pradeep because he wants yeah. to go into a party space, and I know him. I can vouch for him. So cash flow and terms might be also about networking a local group as well, bringing some people along as well. So that's the solution. I love that. Pradeep, what great uh, insights that you shared with all of us. Um, thank you so much. Last thing here is creating multiple brands and trying to launch multiple products simultaneously. Tell us more about that. Yeah, um, don't do it if you can't afford it. <laughs> it's very simple. It sounds so stupid, but because you, I think, I personally think, and I'm guilty of this, going through, you know, Jungle Scout or Helium 10, all these softwares or uh, Amazon Scout. By the way, no one's giving you partnerships. I'm still mentioning your name. Anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, but go, going through these places, right? It's addictive. You, you, as, as an entrepreneur, as an Amazon e-commerce person, you see that the calls, you see the growth and margin. You're like, oh my God, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And, and it's fun. And then you go to China and make deals, it's fun. But the thing is, if you can't generate the cash flow, don't do it. And we've seen time and again, big companies, small companies, trying to launch brands uh, and they go distressed very quickly because the PPC spend is so much now and the launch criteria is so much now you just can't catch up. The best thing is to level your business, make sure you've got a healthy profit coming in for three to six months and you have that buffer and then you slowly launch as well and use as much momentum you can and cash liquidity if you can or leverage to launch that one product where you think it's, it's kind of a home run at this stage where the market is so uh, fragile. Yeah. You know, I completely agree with you, Pradeep. One of the things that, you know, another reason why it took our business so long to grow to that eight figure mark is because honestly, I, we started while I was still working a full-time corporate job. Right. And so what I used is I used that money. My salary is what we used to pay the bills. Right. And we kept funneling, you know, any profits back into the business by launching new products. But that didn't mean we were launching new products like multiple products every single month, right? We did it very judiciously, and it was just my wife and I in a VA to begin with for years. For a few years, it was just, all right, we can launch something maybe every three to six months, right? When we saw that cash flow come back in, then we could be comfortable in investing into the new you know, products. So I think for people that are in that earlier stages, maybe you just stumbled upon seven figures because we did that as well. We did seven figures our first year on Amazon, but that still did not mean, great, we have a million dollar business. That means we can go crazy, like launching new product after new product. Like we did it very slowly and methodically. And now we're at a different point in our business to where we can launch multiple products per month. But that's only because we're an eight figure business and you know, the product categories we're going into, we're, we're not talking about huge cog expenditures and huge PPC budgets either. So like we know our budget at the same time. So it comes down to budgeting and forecasting your financial statements as well. Would you yeah, agree? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and even if you're going to go into distressed asset business, acquisition business or launching products or even scaling a product, I think this period and any period is go learn to cut. Um, cut anything of waste. I hear this term, oh, it's my baby, it's your business. It's not your baby. Your baby is your kid. Your baby, your business is, is a business, right? And you've got to learn to cut things out. And if it's failing, cut it out. And maybe this is scaling now instead of this, right? Scaling can be horizontal growth, keep it ranking three to eight instead of number one. Still, that money's coming in and let time help you to stabilize and go again then go again and go again. Uh, you know, I've, I've failed items, I feel, you know, but it's about how you cut it and how you manage those egos and expectations and, you know, get out of the rut and make those creative deals. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You've got to be quick to cut things that aren't working and doubling down on the things that are working. So, and, and, then, and also don't take too much out of your business. As you mentioned, I'm still doing the consulting and that's the majority of how I pay my living day-to-day -day expenses, you know, mm -hmm living cost analysis. I enjoy it, and but I don't take too much out of the business. Um, 
and, you know, and um, you don't need to learn too much by traveling a lot. Travel to the right places meet, and meet the right people. Uh, and usually if you're in the Western Hemisphere, they're quite easy to connect over the Internet or quite easy to connect. It, it, um, so don't take too much out of the business. Keep it in. Uh, cash is king. Cash flow is the name of the game, and particularly during this time. I know it sounds silly, but uh, if, if I can show you what I can show you, it, it, every business, it's just poor management. truly is. Pretty. This has been awesome. I think so many actionable takeaways. And even for myself, there's things that I've jotted down that we can improve in our business as well. So I love to leave our audience with three actionable takeaways from each episode. Here are the three takeaways that I noted, Pradeep. Let me know if you think I'm missing something. But number one, I think you need to be like focused on your supplier partnership first and foremost, right? Like if there's anything that you can do as you set goals for the following year or for the next six months, whatever it is, I would focus on highlighting and improving the relationship with you you have with your supplier and manufacturing uh, partner and seeing them as a true partner in your business. Um, that's foundation step number one, which then kind of leads into foundation, you know, action step number two, which is start negotiating with your supplier, right? Start asking those hard questions, discuss your terms, right? See if there is an opportunity to get better terms for your product so that you, you can get the product and start selling it before you've paid for it, right? That can be a game changer talking about, you know, opening the curtain and peeling back the onion, so to speak, so that you can know the price of all the individual components that are going into that product to manufacture. And maybe there's an expensive component that you don't necessarily need um, product packaging as well. And so that would be action. Step number two is start opening those negotiation conversations. And then I would say kind of the, the last takeaway for our audience is to be better at cash flow management and really analyzing all of the expenses that are going into your business. We've had um, previous podcast guests. Um, Scott Dietz was on here with the Northbound group that talked about how one expense, a $1 expense now could actually be considered a $5 expense when it comes time to exit, right? If you're paying 500 bucks a month for a particular software, well, guess what? And if you're not fully utilizing that software, it's not necessary. When it comes time to exit, that then becomes a $6,000 a month type of expense to the business. Times that by 12 and then times that by your, you, you know, uh, what you're going to get. And you can see like all of a sudden your $500 expense can be a, you know, $1,000, multiple $1,000 expense to your business um, that you don't need. And And like you said, cutting back on a lot of those, the conference like spend and always thinking like, do I really need this? Does my business need this right now? Um, and, and being efficient with it, not taking too much capital out of your business. So that would be my final takeaway. Pradeep, is there anything else that you would recommend um, from our conversation as an actionable takeaway for our listeners? No, I think you summed up, summed everything up very well. You know, whenever you talk to China or suppliers or your agency it's always uh, you know i would like to say it's not a transaction it's a human interaction uh get people on your side try to try to cost cost down go down to basics and the basics if you get them right i think will be recession proof because the basics always are a strong foundation yeah pradeep i i love that i'm gonna make that a quote put that on in in my office you know your your partnerships with your manufacturers, your agencies, they're not transactions. They genuinely are human interactions. So it causes us, it's its extra work, right? To go the extra mile and create relationships. It's easy to just click on a website and be like, oh yeah, I need this. But if you actually open up a dialogue with people, get to know them, doors start to open for you in ways that you could kind of never imagine. So Pradeep, Last thing, I've got my three final questions that I like to, to ask all of our guests. So number one, what's been the most influential book that you've read and why? The Second Bounce of the Wall, How to Take Risks, How to uh, Turn Risk into Opportunity. The Second Bounce of the Wall. Uh, apologies, uh, the author's name doesn't come to mind, but he was kind of a pioneer in the PE, 
uh, field and he was the first to kind of aggregate or buy businesses and so forth. Um, second basketball, how to take risky opportunities. Very good book. Awesome. I have not heard that one before and I have jotted that down. Very exciting. Number two, what is your favorite productivity um, software tool or a, a software tool that you've been using in your business that has been very helpful and maybe some of the other sellers don't know about it um, or should consider using it? Yeah, we just started using this for three or four months. It's called Parsimony. Mm. Uh, it has the ability to do a lot of things, HR, accounting, inventory, brands, uh, unit economics, all in one. Awesome. We actually had, that's Steve Simonson's software. We had Steve Simonson yeah. on the podcast previously, and he talked about that. So Parsimony, definitely go check that out as a great software tool. Um, and kind of an ERP system, correct? Is that the way you guys are using it? Yeah. And, and the beauty is that you can actually um, tell those guys to kind of fine-tune it for your, your needs as well. You can kind of have our own white-label product as well. Awesome. Love that. All right, Pradeep. Last question here is, who is someone you admire or respect the most in the e-commerce space and that other sellers should be paying attention to and following? Uh, you said his name, probably Steve Simonson, uh, the old Jew. Yeah, anything I do in life, science, academia, always go to the oldest and the wisest and to see, you find someone who's done it, who's done it and done it well. And I think he's done it very well and he's proven it over decades. So, you know, I think Steve Simonson uh, is the man. Awesome. I love that, Pradeep. Well, thank you for um, sharing your great knowledge with us today. If people want to learn more about you or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? On LinkedIn, I just um, Pradeep Kumar Sasidharan or PK Sasidharan on Twitter, PK Sasidharan on Instagram. Um, I think you will have post maybe my details. Just type my name in. I'm here for everyone in the community. I like helping people out. Let's have the chat and let's see what we can do. I'm always here. I love it. And we'll we'll link your name there and LinkedIn in the show notes for people to connect with you. But Pradeep, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Josh. Um, really appreciated it. It's a good chat. And thank you to Amy as well uh, for connecting us. Thank you for listening. Visit ecombreakthrough.com for more information. If you've enjoyed today's episode, the best way you can show your appreciation is by clicking the subscribe button and quickly leaving a review. See you again next time.